Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, Global Witness. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Eric Holthaus to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Eric is a meteorologist, writer and eco-socialist. His work aims to change the narrative of the climate emergency away from dystopia towards courageous imaginative possibilities. In his new book, The Future Earth, Eric offers a radical and positive vision of our future, what the world could look like if we implemented radical solutions on the scale of the crisis we face. Thank you very much, Eric, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm so looking forward to talking to you about your new book, uh, fresh, fresh from the printing press, uh, The Future Earth. Fabulous book, uh, very positive uh, perspective on the environment, on climate change, and uh, lots of ideas in there. Uh, maybe just before we start talking about that, if you can, by way of background, just talk a little bit about what you do and um, you know your, your, how, how you've got there. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, um, I grew up in, in Kansas in the middle of the United States in a small town, Not a whole lot to do there, but watch the weather. So (laughs) that's what I did. Went to school and got a degree in meteorology. And then I started working on uh, climate change adaptation projects in East Africa and the Caribbean, trying to figure out how to use weather forecasts to help improve, you know, livelihoods, basically, mostly in agriculture, but also just in general. To, to try to see how we can use our, our knowledge to help make the world a better place for lack of, you know, like other way of describing um, this altruism that I had and still have, I guess. But I think that underlying all of that is really this desire to hopefully try to meet other people where they are, understanding that, you can't save the world on your own. You can't, no matter what sort of science you do or solar panel you build, um, it's still going to have to be collective decisions that we're all embedded in that will determine our collective path. So I think that over, over my career, I've realized that it is not possible necessarily to completely transform a system while working exclusively inside of that system. I think you need to have a diversity of ideas, a diversity of perspectives, including perspectives that at the moment might feel impossible. 
And I think that is what I tried to articulate in this book is that even though what we are trying to do feels impossible, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try that. It doesn't mean that that's not what is required of us in this time. So yeah, yeah. It, it, it's sort of, it's sort of like, I don't know, um, that sort of magical idealism from my childhood still coming through of saying like, everyone should have what they need. Everyone should be able to see the beauty of the world around us and have, have this sort of network of mutual aid take care of each other along the way. I feel like that's what the point of a society is. And I think that sometimes we get lost in the details of trying to achieve that uh, and end up reinforcing the sort of dangerous system that has brought us here. Yeah, well, uh, we talk about that. That's interesting, though, this question of outlook. Um, the first part of the book is, is uh, well, it's, it's a pretty grim um, picture of, of the state of the world. Uh, we face numerous interlocking environmental, social, economic challenges. I was wondering what in particular is on your mind? Is there a particular aspect? Clearly we're in the middle of the, the COVID crisis and so forth, but what, what worries you the most, Eric? Well, right now, I think that it's our inability to see how systemic the problem is. It really goes down to the root of what we are doing every day when we wake up. I think that to think of climate change as uh the 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 big issue the sort of the big existential issue that trumps everything else is sort of missing the point i think that climate change is is a symptom of a larger problem which is injustice in general um that if you fight for access to healthcare or or housing or schools that is also a fight that you're fighting for climate justice as well, because people need to be able to sort of like wake up in the morning and know that their house is going to be there when they get back and not be evicted or know that they will be able to trust that their kids can go to school and not contract an incurable disease. You know, like we need to have assurances of all those things to be able to do the sustainability work, do, to do the climate work that we are sort of drawn to as um, folks that are focused on climate. So um, I think that seeing that bigger picture is really um, what will, the only thing that I think will be able to bring us the solutions that we need in the time that we still have. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. And uh, I certainly like to talk about uh, this question of environmental justice and climate justice and so forth. Now, uh, there's been, it's a period of profound discontinuity in some respects right now. There is some significant changes that have been unfolding and uh, some new wins coming as well. Uh, New policies, new uh, responses by governments, you know, obviously they vary uh, in in different countries. Some common themes, obviously some some very inspiring stories of solidarity uh, during the crisis. At the same time, governments have been in some countries using this opportunity to to remove environmental regulations, to provide contracts to to suppliers that aren't being vetted and and various things going on. Do you have a sense of of that at the moment, of how the the winds are blowing? Yeah, I think that as Naomi Klein wrote years ago, this is sort of 
disaster capitalism in action that um, often people in power will use the cover of an emergency to sort of push through agendas that they wouldn't be able to push through otherwise. So, so I think you see that happening right now in climate where, where at least in the U S there is sort of uh, the, <laughs> the emergency is almost celebrated in, <laughs> in sense like uh, that, that this is, this is a time to, I mean, they they ro- the they rolled back the the NEPA, the um, National Environmental Policy Act, um, which is like the bedrock from the 1970s environmental law in the United States that allows <laughs> the in, the Environmental Protection Agency to do its work. So they've suspended enforcement of pollution regulations. Like th- these are all things that would be sort of unthinkable in a normal year. And now it barely makes the news. It, it's really frustrating. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And at the same time, you know, with Black Lives Matter, public opinions move very quickly. There are uh, some tremendous momentum, activism, tying in with other movements as well. You know, it's it's crystallizing some of the tensions, I guess, also. Did you find uh, elements of what's happening inspiring? Yeah, and honestly, it had been happening. You know, I finished the book in January of this year, right as COVID was first coming into the news in China. And, you know, so my frame in, in the book, um, was mostly in the school strikes and sort of the momentum that had been building from Standing Rock a few years ago um, through the dialogue about the Green New Deal and the um, the science that had been coming out all along then uh, saying that the achievement in, in Paris of um, having a, a global agreement on climate change for the first time really came as a, as a result of small island uh, nations and other frontline climate nations reading the science and understanding that we can't work towards a target of two degrees or even 1.5 degrees is like the upper limit of the stability of the long-term stability of ice sheets that would then, you know, put their countries underwater permanently effectively. So <clears throat> it's a non-negotiable for many entire nations and people uh, all around the world um, fighting for their survival. And to see it as a justice issue where the rights and existence of of, of certain people living in certain places don't n- seem to matter to the large, larger global economy and having that as the f- sort of foundation of the international climate negotiations in 2015 was a real revolutionary moment, I think. And then uh, sort of the youth outrage um, materialized after that as, as um, youth were, were watching um, leaders just sort of ignore that the, the Paris Agreement even existed. Uh, and in, again, in the case of the United States, trying to roll it back or, or withdraw from it. I think that it just became so egregious and so unacceptable that that it was clear that there was some sort of foundational reason why this kept happening and it's because you know certain people weren't given the same rights as others so um so I think that 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 
framework of seeing uh, climate as basically just another justice issue aligned with other injustice issues has, and I think will continue to make real progress for the first time in, in climate. I mean, you see that that um, the, as the school strikes were gaining momentum, at least in New Zealand, there uh, reached this sort of critical mass of youth climate strikers that were able to affect national policy last year. And I think that was a really major step worldwide. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting you, 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 you mentioned this uh, climate change, I guess, as being, you know, as, as, as a justice issue. And that's really important. And we will talk about that and, and as part of other justice uh, issues as well. And at the same time, I know you're a science communicator. You write about science. I'm interested in getting your perspective also. At the same time, really, in the last couple of years, there's, uh, in terms of the narrative, uh, the way we talk about climate change, there's a lot more of this time running out, 12 years to save the future, tipping points and things like that, which cre- really kind of crank up the many things, anxiety, but this kind of sense of immediacy, the sense of urgency and so forth, and, and, and the sense of existential uh, threat. What, what's your view on that? Yeah, um, I think that, you know, and even during the pandemic, there's there's more really scary climate science coming out that is getting buried. I think the most recent one that I remember seeing was the the sort of reframing of the inherent climate sensitivity uh, range of, of temperature increase that can be expected for a given uh, a set uh, amount of emissions. Uh, and, uh, you know, over this 40-year review, scientists have found that these low levels of sensitivity that were sort of championed by uh, people that were advocating for uh, lower restrictions on emissions are saying like, you know, maybe, maybe the climate actually doesn't respond as, as forcefully as we are fearful of those scenarios were kind of ruled out uh, in this paper a couple weeks ago. And there was a scientist that was quoted in the news coverage saying that, well, does this mean that, you know, we've already left our, you know, 12 year window or, or whatever. And the scientist said, uh, well, we sort of left that window a few decades ago. You know, like we've already locked in a dangerous amount of climate change. But it's not really an effective communication method to say the best time to act was 30 years ago, you know, and, we, and we've missed our chance. Um, even if that may be true at some level, you know, we're not going to repair the Great Barrier Reef now after, you know, three out of the last five years, I think there's been mass bleaching there, which is sort of unheard of in the, in the geological record. There are just discovered methane seepage in Antarctica for the first time. And these are, these are phenomena that are presumably decades and centuries in the making. It doesn't just switch on overnight. There's a lot of there's a lot of work that has to be done to warm the ocean by enough. Uh, I mean, the ocean's big. It takes a lot of energy to warm it up. And we've been spending decades doing that work 
to warm the ocean in and there's a 30 to 40 year lag period to cool it back down even if emissions ended all today so i think that there is uh, an acknowledgement that we are pretty far gone right now that is useful in climate communication and i tried to do that in the first one third of the book to say just like just how bad it is you know other people have done that work telling that story very well um i decided to take a different approach in in my book and saying yeah this story has been told really and this is basically where the traditional story of climate communication ends of saying it's really bad guys and actually it's way worse than what you even were fearful <laughs> of like i think there's only so much your brain can take by by continuing to repeat that point that it's worse than you think yeah and I think it also, I think, is that Mike Hume talks about this kind of climate determinism, this idea of uh, it's almost that the only dialogue about the future is driven by this scientific analysis and doesn't include, you know, the humanities or other ways of experiencing and thinking about the future and imagining the future as well, which is, I think is, is is something that you're really at the heart of what you're doing in your book and so forth, uh, which is, which is very interesting. And you, you break the, the, uh, you know, the story, I guess, into, into three different periods. What, what's the thinking here? And can you briefly identify what, what would be the features of each of these different periods? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I decided to sort of consciously make this choice of saying that uh, I'm not going to go down the road of just sort of talking about how bad it could get because um, we don't really need to know how bad it could get because it is already bad enough. We have already locked in decades or centuries of struggle for hundreds of millions of people that was preventable. And so we should just acknowledge that and say, that this uh, is also something that it's still possible to repair. We can still, we, there, there is also science that is just as strong to say that if we uh, sort of uh, rethink the approach to um, everything, you know, that, I mean, that's what the IPCC recommends to meet the 1.5 degree goal is uh, transformative changes in all aspects of society. That was the quote from the summary of policymakers. So if we, if we start to enact transformative change in all aspects of society, then we have a decent shot at limiting um, warming to 1.5 degrees, which is, you know, the the goal that the world community has agreed to so that's really you know what we should be doing so in the three sort of forward looking sections of the book i talk about what it might look like if that happens starting with uh in the 2020s just like putting on the putting on the brakes um and starting um to repair the, the, these sort of fundamental aspects of democracy that have broken over the last few decades and seeing how, if you look at polling data in almost every country and especially, especially in historically colonized and, and marginalized countries, 
climate change is the number one issue on people's minds. Um, it's the it's the issue that they are most worried about, and it's the issue that they're willing to take steps that go far beyond what their politicians are suggesting as solutions. So, if you sort of are able to make democracy work better, which of course is a big if, but all of these are big ifs, then then you will set yourself up for um, in the 2030s trying to come up with alternatives to the current extractive capitalistic system that has sort of led us down this path. And in in that section, I talk with Kate Rayworth, whose book Donut Economics has really, I think, laid the one of the best blueprints for a, a systems way of thinking about the economy of saying what we're really trying to do in an economy is provide and fill people's needs, not only for survival, but for thriving, for living a good life. You know, the U.S. Declaration of Independence lists in quote inalienable right as the pursuit of happiness. So we should be living a good life, not only just living, uh, just staying alive. That is something that everyone should have. That's a fundamental human right that everyone should have. So, so I think that, you know, and there's some, been some recent work by Julia Steinberger and others to start, try to quantify what that might look like. And uh, she found that there is capacity both in emission space and in our, um, our economic capacity to provide more, a more equal distribution of of resources around the world that will vastly reduce emissions at the same time. So we can sort of do what we need to do, which is, you know, try to work towards building a more justice-focused world and sharply reduce emissions at the same time. We can improve quality of life for billions of people around the world and reduce emissions at the same time. That is possible. I like the way you you imagine uh, these scenarios or kind of create them in a way. It often seems, though, that the way we look at these questions, that uh, there's a lot more attention paid to the to the the actual you know the scientific feasibility of these questions, and an awful lot less as to the political feasibility and you know getting things done politically, which is hugely important. What's your take on that? Yeah, definitely. And I think that, um, you know, that's pretty much the main theme and the criticism of the the book so far is that there's not enough attention given to, oh, yeah, this is great, but it will never happen. Like, (laughs) uh, I mean, that's kind of the point of the book is that it's, of course, it's not going to happen unless we start talking about it or, or, or figuring out why it can't happen. At one point, I wrote down, hopefully it made it into the final version of the book, that I don't know what's going to happen. And and very likely, nothing that I write in here will happen exactly as I wrote it. It's just like, that's just not what I'm good at. And I don't know that anyone could ever know that of of how it's going to play out the next 30 years. But um, But I do know that it needs to happen along these lines in terms of the pace of emissions reductions and the focus, the primary focus on justice as it's happening, or else it's not going to happen. So I just tried to sketch out some some details from my very poorly, poor 
Uh, I mean, I'm not a good fiction writer, basically, is what I I think what people were asking for in their criticism was saying, like, try to come up with all of some detail, some some like visual details about how this would work, who would oppose it, what would their speeches be like? Uh, You know, I tried to write all that out and we scrapped it in the editing stage because it just didn't feel plausible or, or like it was adding anything to the to the discussion. The huge task already outlining these ideas and bringing them into, you know, one place where they can be considered and you can think about them and that kind of forward thinking. I mean, I do a podcast related to Project Drawdown and Mm. it's just so inspiring, the range of solutions and possible solutions there that uh, the impact they have and and how, you know, we call them win-win, just they're obvious to do and yet... So few people still know about Project Drawdown, but a lot of these ideas as well. So I think, you know, that, that, that kind of criticism is, is because that's at a second stage, but I, I was interested just to get your sense uh, about the, the, the political side of things. I think something that's very interesting and that you, at the heart of your approach and what you're interested in, and you mentioned a couple of times this question of climate justice, because clearly there are future scenarios where you know, global warming is is less than it might be in other scenarios, but it's still a worse off scenario for the, 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 you know, people who are traditionally excluded from the economic system in various different ways. So can you talk a little bit about what, what, what does climate justice look like and how does embedding that into the way you think about dealing with the environmental problems we have, how does that change things? Yeah, I think that, climate justice really is it's sort of accepting that everyone has <laughs> has an equal right to the atmosphere everyone has an equal right to the stability of the planet that we live on really i mean and understanding that because of structural and systemic racism and because of history over the last 500 years <laughs> there are winners and losers when it comes to climate change and it's sort of structured that way. It's not that way by accident. I think that, you know, part, part of the answer here is, is um, understanding the political power that has been sort of erased or hidden or exists. It's just not, it's just not recognized as such too often. You know, I mean, you saw a glimpse of that in small island states in Paris, where the final outcome was far more bold than than what I think most journalists were expecting, at least. And I think that, you know, that maybe that's because, you know, the rich countries never had any intention of following the rules set out in Paris anyway, in the first place. So they sort of just gave up. I feel like that's a pretty cynical way of thinking about it. I think that there actually is a real political power in in people who have been um, systematically marginalized that it's not talked about often because it's uncomfortable for people who have, you know, like, like me as a white uh, middle-class American have historically benefited from the system as it is. And so, you know, of course, it's not something that feels comfortable to talk about. But I think that we are, you know, part, again, part of the answer of getting to this world where 
where this transformative change not only seems possible, but likely, I think is in people who have wanted and, and demanded this kind of change for centuries, being heard and listened and having, having systems that, that specifically prescribe power for, for folks um, who have been erased from the conversation for, for so long. And I think that, you know, that's why I put, you know, reforming democracy as the very first step in getting this sort of bold changes. And, you know, by the 2050s, that starts looking like, well, we can sort of, we can rethink our whole project as, as humanity on in the world. If we have spent 20 years of, of sort of, stopping climate change and reversing the harms that it has caused, then we can do almost anything. Because <laughs> this is a very difficult job. And I think that after 20 years of doing this work and being successful, we will see that we are capable of so much more than what we are um, think we are right now. Yeah, it's very interesting. The, you say the, the, the power of ideas as well. And how change happens, social change happens. And I spoke to Francis Fox Piven about, we're talking about the Occupy movement. She was saying that, you know, it's very often written off or has been a failed uh, program or initiative and so forth. But she said, that's how change happens. It's a series of steps, each in their own, which may not appear to amount to anything, but somehow they're necessary to get to something else. You know, she talked about the civil rights movement in that kind of way, a series of failures. Which, which I think is, which, which is, is very, very interesting as well. Now, in one of your chapters here, you talk about, uh, I think, in looking forward, in the United States, we realize that we prefer spending time with one another rather than maintaining our stuff. And certainly here in the UK, there are indications that, you know, after lockdown and so forth, that, that people don't want uh, business as usual. They don't want to spend their time traveling into offices all the time. They, they want to spend more time with their families and, and so forth. And I, I, there seems to be an increased awareness of the, that they're the things that matter to them, you know, more the community, friendship, uh, and that kind of thing uh, to some extent. Do, do you feel that there's potential that in, in America that, that, that those kind of insights, uh, awareness is, is, is potentially growing and, and could be impactful? Yeah, absolutely. I think that we are seeing that happen where at least on on climate thinking about how to structure comprehensive climate legislation. We still don't have any comprehensive climate legislation in the United States. There's no real governing policy of what our national climate strategy is or or should be. Um that has not been articulated in, in law yet. So I think that having that conversation over the next uh, couple of years will be informed by all of this, the struggle that's happening now and, um, and, and will be hopefully a lot different than what it would have been a couple of years ago. I think that people here are really sort of, with open eyes, seeing how broken the system is now uh, and seeing that it's not going to work anymore. It'll be a tough conversation, of course, but I think that at least we're having that conversation now where we we weren't a couple years ago. Yeah. 
Yeah. In, 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 in one of the uh, forward scenarios, you talk about a, a, you know, a, a global Marshall Plan kind of idea. Um, elsewhere, there's a line that says, you know, uh, this is what the IPP said, therefore somehow this has kind of happened. Are you a big believer in, in, in top-down change and political change like that? No, I think that, I mean, in the book, I have it happening as a result of something like what is happening now, which is this sort of globally shared uprising. I I mean, I imagine it as an extension of the climate, youth climate strikes. But in present day, July uh, 2020, it's clear that it would happen as a result of the global pandemic and global recession, you know, coupled with the climate emergency at the same time. I think people are sort of seeing we have these overlapping crises and we are not going to sort of allow uh, it to return back to how it, how it was. And, you know, a manifestation of that could be these sort of large, large scale wealth transfer uh, plans, you know, whether that be universal basic income or reparation, you know, international reparations for, for colonialism, uh, you know, sort of like maybe a second wave of decolonization around the world. I think that those sorts of things are inevitable. I don't think that they would ever be initiated top down, because I don't think people at the top, first off, care to fix it at all. I think that they're doing just fine how, how they are. Yes. <laughs> so, so I don't think, you know, I mean, it, like at least in the, in the U S the six wealthiest billionaires over the last few weeks have made another $200 billion just in like stock prices going up. So it's not something that is being shared equally around the world. And I mean, people see it, so it's yeah. not going to be yeah. able to last much longer. I don't yeah. Yeah. What was some of the, the, the positive, uh, most positive high impact ideas that, that inspired you as you were, you know, thinking about this uh, changes that, that you think people should know about, Eric? Um, I think the, the sort of citizens assembly model of direct democracy was really important for me to learn about more. Um, understanding um, that there are there is precedent around the world of doing these sort of, I mean, in the U.S., it would be considered sort of like jury duty, where where you're sort of tasked with solving a policy problem instead of instead of determining whether a person accused of a crime is guilty or innocent. You would also be tasked with fixing a problem of saying saying you know there's a problem of of affordable housing in our city. And we also have a problem of carbon emissions. We also have a problem of public transportation. How can we fix all of this in one sort of coherent plan and and sort of give people a chance to do it? I mean, this is this is like democracy without having to go through the the, the like distortion of of election process, um, where you know people who when elections in the U.S. come from a certain type of background, usually because of systemic problems with our democracy. So we could go around that and still have, a, you know, maybe an even better functioning democracy. So 
I don't know. I think that, um, you know, regenerative agriculture, sort of rethinking the industrial agriculture model is also super important. I think that, honestly, anti-racism, anti-racist thought and action and literature is also a very important technology, if you want to call it that, for creating rapid change. So I would put those three towards the top. Yeah, yeah. Status quo is very powerful, and we know, not least with the fossil fuel industry, there are considerable entrenched interests. What, how, have you thought a bit about that? Is that something that you think you see some potential there for, for, for dealing with? I mean, and I think this is probably where I would be criticized, and this is where I have been criticized before of saying, like, I don't honestly put much attention on the fossil fuel industry or on climate deniers or on obstruction politics or any of that. I mean, this is where sort of the mainstream climate movement tends to focus most of its energy. And I don't think it's that important. I think it's more important to articulate an alternative vision or an, or alternative systems that, that could be work because, because if, if you indict the fossil fuel industry, which is very clear that the fossil fuel industry for decades has been, has been systematically trying to block climate action, it's very clear. You still are left with the question, okay, well, what do we do instead of the fossil fuel industry? You know, what, there's the technical answer, which is, you know, zero low carbon um, power. But the sort of political example of like, how do we, how do we, how do we put together an energy infrastructure that is not centralized, which that's really what, that's really what the fossil fuel industry is fighting for is a centralized energy infrastructure that they can control. It doesn't really matter if it's with wind or solar or natural gas or any or nuclear or anything as long as there's a centralized form of energy production then there will be a small group of people that will fight and control it so i think thinking about alternatives to that is is more useful which is why a lot of people have hope for renewable energy is that it can be decentralized, but in practice is not really being decentralized. We have most of our wind and solar power coming from these sort of like large industrial farms. So uh, which kind of run into the same issues of consent with, uh, you know, indigenous folks whose land they're built on with, you know, utilities with like who gets the, to sort of profit from that um, infrastructure. I think that, yeah, again, like really sort of coming up with, I would call it like irresistible alternatives to that system will make them go away quicker than just, you know, like exposing all of the crimes because we've exposed a lot of crimes and nothing has changed. So, yeah. Yeah. Again, it comes back to this question, as you so persuasively said, the importance of imagining the future. And there's a section, I think, in the book on on principles for imagining a future Earth. Can you talk about a few of those, Eric, just now? Yeah, I I mean, I think the most important thing that I I try to 
to emphasize is that we just have conversations, actual out loud conversations with people who we know. Ideally, they would be, you know, friends and family, people who trust us and, and, and say, you know, there's chances, chances are that if you're listening to this podcast right now, that you are probably like the climate person in your group of friends. So just, you know, own it and say, this is my role apparently in life (laughs) is to talk about this stuff because we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's 2020 and no one else is going to do it. So I might as well, (laughs) I think that, yeah, honestly, like whatever will motivate you to get out of bed in the morning is the kind of work that you should be doing. I think that we shouldn't really obsess over, you know, which type of plastic packaging is worse than the other one. It's just that, you need to do the like do the individual work as best you can to sort of be in right relationship with yourself to understand that you are reducing your your personal impact on the problem as much as you can but also devote some of that energy <laughs> that you would use sorting your trash into like i don't know coming up with some systemic solution to a large-scale problem and working for systemic change. So I think that is another one of my big advice points. Yes, yes, absolutely. What's next for you, Eric? Oh, man, I want to, like, go back to regular writing (laughs) because, you know, it's it's really hard to have two jobs at once and raise two kids. So, So I think that doing essays, doing, like, weekly science reporting, that kind of stuff is what I think, what I think I need to to start refocusing on as best as I can. Well, I wish you the very best success with that balancing and juggling family and work and uh, getting uh, new ideas and sharing them. And thank you so much for sharing your, your work, your ideas that you've thought about uh, in the future earth. And uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Jason Hickel's powerful new book, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World, which shows how we need to transform the dogmas of capitalism to forge a new system that is fit for the 21st century. Available online and at all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.